Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Authorities in Illinois learn about how the alleged July 4th parade shooter was able to conceal himself during the attack. They're also revealing how he escaped the scene. As record numbers of people continue to migrate to America, record numbers are dying along the way. A UN report calls the U.S.-Mexico border the deadliest land crossing in the world. We'll take a look at some of the most vulnerable seats in the House of Representatives this year, as Democrats fight to save their razor-thin majority. The United States military is recruiting so few people that some are calling it a threat to national security. How could that affect the rest of the world? A retired Army general tells us what he thinks. President Biden bestows the Medal of Honor on multiple Vietnam veterans. We'll tell you who got them and what they did to earn the award. What are parents saying about their rights in children's education now that Florida is restricting some classroom discussions on sexuality? We hear from a mom and parents advocate. The three-time reigning champion at Wimbledon was on the ropes today in the quarterfinals. We'll tell you how Novak Djokovic responded after dropping the first two sets. A seventh person has died from the Highland Park 4th of July parade shooting yesterday. Police are revealing what they learned about the suspect they arrested in relation to the shooting. They captured the man after an hours-long manhunt on Monday. Authorities say 21-year-old Robert E. Cremo III allegedly fired more than 70 rounds. According to investigators, he dressed up in women's clothing during the attack to conceal himself and blended in with the crowd to escape. Police also found a second rifle inside his vehicle. Authorities say they believe Cremo planned the attack for weeks and purchased the firearms legally from a local seller. The mayor of Highland Park says she knew Cremo as a Cub Scout when she was the Cub Scout leader. She says Cremo wasn't previously known to police until yesterday. Police say they don't have any information to suggest at this point that there was a racial or religious motivation. And now to the border. Not only are record numbers of illegal border crossers coming into the United States, but record numbers of migrants are dying along the way. A U.N. study says the U.S.-Mexico border is the world's deadliest land crossing. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. A United Nations study showed that over 1,200 people died migrating across the Americas in 2021. That's a 53% increase from the previous year, and the majority of those deaths occurred along the U.S.-Mexican border, according to the U.N.'s Missing Migrant Project. At the land border, we also have uh, people who are trying to cross deserts, uh, who are getting lost and abandoned. Uh, bodies are found, skeletons are found years later. Todd Benzman is a senior fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies. He's also the author of America's Covert Border War. The U.S.-Mexico border is extremely deadly by comparison to all previous years or a lot of previous years because so many more people are coming to it and crossing it. In answer to the siren call of Biden policies that let people in. According to Customs Border Patrol statistics obtained by the Epic Times, Border Patrol agents apprehended over 232,000 illegal border crossers in May. That's the highest monthly total in 23 years. 
And in that same month, 79 illegal immigrants were found dead or died while crossing the border, according to the CBP data. Benzman says it's not going to end anytime soon and puts the blame on the Biden administration's policies. Benzman mentioned the semi-truck that was recently discovered in Texas with over 50 dead migrants. Those people were trying to get into the interior of the country because what's waiting for them in the interior? It's a deportation-free zone. Everybody knows that if they can get past the Border Patrol, they're home free under this administration. That is another enticement for which all of those people and many more behind them died. Since January 2021, border authorities have apprehended more than 3.2 million illegal border crossers, according to CBP data. And approximately 800,000 have been detected but got away. We reached out to the Department of Homeland Security for comment but didn't hear back before airtime. Jason Perry, NTD News. And in election news, the race for control of the House is in full swing, just months before the election. Democrats are fighting to hold their razor-thin majority. But with soaring inflation, surging crime, and illegal immigration, Republicans say they're confident they'll flip some seats. Here's NTD's Melina Weiskup with a look at some of the most vulnerable seats in the House of Representatives. President Biden's ratings continue to trend in the wrong direction for Democrats. The latest poll results from Reuters show that 57% of Americans disapprove of White House leadership, just 38% approve. This paired with historical trends that favor the party opposite of the president during their first term makes this November a battleground season for congressional elections. Democrats hold a slim majority in both chambers. Here are the closest races that could change power in the House of Representatives. Virginia's second and seventh districts are currently both both held by moderate Democrats, Representatives Loria and Spanberger. They're facing candidates Jen Kiggins and Yesley Vega, who have been endorsed by top Republicans in Congress. Virginia's newest governor won an election taking office from a Democrat, which could hint a red wave in the state. And in Texas, southern border districts are feeling the impact from an illegal immigration surge. A Republican, Mayra Flores, just won a seat that was held by a Democrat in a special election. This sets up the potential for a close race for Representative Henry Cuellar, a Democrat currently representing District 28. Cuellar is a more moderate Democrat who supports abortion restrictions and has been critical of Biden's immigration policies. And two seats in Florida were recently opened up by Democrats leaving office. The Cook Political Report predicts these two seats will lean Republican in the election. And while Republicans are favored to win back the House this November, the Senate seats are much more competitive. The current makeup of the Senate right now is that Democrats have a very slim majority over Republicans, so if just one seat is lost to Republicans, it could tip the balance in the upper chamber. So each seat this November is precious for Democrats to hold on to, especially in these battleground states. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. The United States military is recruiting fewer and fewer people to the point where some are calling it a threat to national security. But why don't people want to join anymore? Our reporter spoke with a retired Army general about that and about how this situation could affect the U.S. in the long run. The U.S. Army is going to cut down its active military force by 12,000 soldiers next year due to low recruitment numbers. The Air Force and the Navy are also having a hard time finding airmen and sailors. 
In congressional testimony, a Marine general called 2022 the most challenging recruiting year since the U.S. implemented the all-volunteer force in the 1970s. Looking forward, we will need to be innovative and adapt to these challenges and be agile in our approach. But why are fewer people enlisting? Retired Lieutenant General Thomas Spohr serves on the Heritage Foundation's Center for National Defense. He told NTD there are a few reasons. Some are as simple as a basic labor shortage. Others are more complicated. Young people don't get much education in civil society and civil service when they're in schools nowadays. So they don't, they don't really understand their obligations as citizens to serve their country and, to, and you know, to think of something greater than themselves. He says another reason is that people are losing trust in many U.S. institutions, such as Congress, the Supreme Court, and the military. But why the military? If you're on the American left in politics, you know, you believe that, you know, the military is a breeding ground for racism or extremism. And if you're on the right, uh, you believe it's, you know, becoming an experiment in wokeism, in, uh, you know, in social experiments. And so there's this, you know, the military is, is finding it very difficult to stay apolitical and neutral in the middle, middle which is where they belong. Spore also cites the vaccine mandate. He says around a third of all young people between the ages of 18 and 26 aren't vaccinated and probably aren't going to get the shot. So what's the outcome of the U.S. having a smaller military? The general says countries like China could take advantage of that. They're very opportunistic and so if they perceive weakness on the part of the United States, either because we don't keep our forces ready or we're having difficulty recruiting, you know, they may capitalize on that. They may make that opportunity to to advance on Taiwan and take Taiwan. And so we have to be aware that we are playing in a large world and, and we have to keep ourselves strong in that regard. He added that the recruitment problem can be solved if schools and family members start teaching young people the importance of serving their country again. We reached out to the military asking about possible solutions to the recruitment issue, but didn't hear back before broadcast. Reporting by Arian Pazdar, NTD News. President Biden has awarded the highest military honor to four veterans of the Vietnam War. Biden praised their heroism during a ceremony at the White House today. Here are the details. Speaking in the East Room of the White House on Tuesday, President Biden recounted the battlefield service of four Vietnam veterans. He praised their heroism and lamented that they hadn't received appropriate recognition until now. Not every service member has received the full recognition they deserve. Today, we're setting the record straight. We're upgrading the awards of four soldiers who perform acts of incredible heroism during the Vietnam conflict to respect the conspicuous gallantry and, how in, and, and the intrepidability of their service. One of the four soldiers honored at the ceremony, the late Staff Sergeant Edward Kaneshiro, died in 1967 of a gunshot wound in Vietnam. He was honored for helping his unit withdraw from a village when they were under fire by North Vietnamese troops. To the late Staff Sergeant Edward M. Kaneshiro, Specialist 5 Dwight W. Birdwell, to Specialist 5 Dennis M. Fufuji, and to Major John Duffy, I'm proud to finally award our highest military recognition, the Medal of Honor, to each of you, one posthumously. Birdwell was honored for helping to head off an assault and evacuate the wounded at an airbase near Saigon, even after sustaining injuries. 
Fuji was presented with the medal for treating the wounded and directing airstrikes against enemy positions after his air ambulance was forced to crash land. Duffy's award is for leading troops who came under ambush, repelling attackers, and evacuating the wounded despite his own injuries. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And moving to education now, a topic that will likely be on the minds of the many voting parents this November is parental rights. The mainstream Democrat position has been to afford teachers more control, at least while kids are in school. This past Friday, as Florida's parental rights and education bill became law, the White House called it discriminatory, casting the law as part of a disturbing and dangerous trend. Now in Florida, as a consequence of this law, kindergarten through third grade teachers won't be instructing students about sexual orientation or gender identity in the classroom. And parents will have more influence when it comes to what mental health counselors tell their underage children, part of a trend pushing against previous practices that affirmed LGBT identities. This issue seems to be on the minds of a growing number of parents around the nation. One such parent is Alexis Spiegelman from the parental rights advocacy group Moms for Liberty, and I spoke with her earlier today. Alexis Spiegelman, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Now, Florida's parental rights and education bill is now in effect. Um, yourself and Moms for Liberty, which you're a part of, has been a huge proponent of this bill. Could you tell me why, uh, why you think it's so necessary? Well, I think across the nation, parents and just citizens have realized how much power our school boards and local governments have. And especially during the COVID situation, um, across our state, we saw what happens when um, when school boards majorities go rogue and they don't respect the role of a parent and where their role ends. Um, and they have somewhat of an agenda of their own. So I do believe that the Parental Bill of Rights and this um, HB 1557, Parental Rights and Education, further um, enforces the parent's role in the child's education, medical decisions, religious upbringing, and their values. And it invites parents back into the education process. Um, in addition to that, we've seen a lot of what's going on behind the scenes in our schools, and they've really um, worked around parents and even worked around the community as a whole um, by, by doing certain things that nobody really had knowledge of. Some of this includes some of the health surveys that have been going on um, and this uh, LGBTQ guides that they've been you know, implementing in schools without parental knowledge. So I think this helps um, address some of that as well, which is extremely important um, because as we all know, academic achievement is directly related to parental involvement. So the more we, um, we advocate for parental involvement, the better all of our students will perform. Have your children or any of the children of parents that you know encountered any inappropriate sexual lessons or discussions in the classroom? And what's been the effect of that? Yes, it's it's all over the place. Um, one of our um, members, January Little John, she was actually at the signing of um, HB 1557, and she has a very personal experience with this, where her um, her child was talked to behind closed doors and encouraged to identify as a different gender without um, notifying the parents. And there's there are many many stories just like that, um, and so. 
Um, it's just kids need their parents. Nobody knows better a child better than their parents. And parents should absolutely be involved in, in those types of decisions. Uh, in addition to that, we've also seen in the curriculum, I mean, even um, recently here in Sarasota, um, there was a workbook from someone's, I think it was a math class or, or science or something like that. And, um, you know, one of the word problems included mentioning a woman's breasts. So it's really, you know, when people who, who criticize this bill, they make it about something that it's not. But really, it's just protecting the innocence of children. Um, this is for, for very young elementary students to um, kind of pull out the over-sexualization that we're seeing, the hyper-sexualized environment at school, um, and to redirect the focus back to academics. Because if you look at how schools are performing, it's not going great. And I think it just reflects um, a really, a lack of priorities in our schools. Um, and, and that's something that we really would like to see is our schools focusing on what we send our kids there to do, which is uh, uh, to gain some academic success. Moms for Liberty has more than 95,000 members nationwide. Do you expect that parents in other states will be pushing now for more legislative changes along these <laughs> lines? Yes, I mean we were just in um, in Nashville recently, um, and I was speaking with other um, leaders in this area, and that's absolutely something that we would like to see across the country, and 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 parents want to see across the country, um, because you know I think over time. Parents' rights have just been encroached upon and individual liberties, and this is just setting the record straight where that line ends, like where the parents' role covers and where the school is, uh, where their role ends. And I think that's been very blurred, and I think that people didn't realize that until we were hit in the face with reality during COVID and, you know, medical decisions were being made for children and, you know, parents were just completely being treated with disrespect and um, just constituents. This should matter to every American citizen because, as Ronald Reagan said, this generation will one day run our country, they will fight in our military, and um, they will they will lead in our hospitals, they'll be taking care of people. So it's important that we give them the, the skills they need to succeed in life and to reach their God-given full potential. Um, and also, it's important that... Um, you know, we, we protect those liberties and that they don't grow up thinking that it's okay for the government to um, to step over your individual God-given inherent liberties. Alexis Spiegelman from Moms for Liberty, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And if I may say one more thing that's extremely important, um, in this month and in Tampa, we have our national uh, summit, Moms for Liberty National Summit, July 14th through 17th. If you're interested um, in learning more about what's going on in public education and how to advocate, all the way to if you'd like to learn how to run for office or if you'd like to learn how to get involved and make some change legislatively in your state, please join us. You can go to our website, momsforliberty.org, and register under the events tab. Just look for the national summit, and we hope to see you there. Thank you. Coming up, the U.S. and China discussed hot-button issues earlier today. This comes as President Biden weighs lifting some tariffs on Chinese imports. And 
Tesla, no longer the world's top-selling electric vehicle company. Who's at the top now, and how did they get there? Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. At The Nation Speaks, we don't just scratch the surface. We want to go wide and deep. Our viewers come away with a much richer understanding of the issues of the day. We really make a big effort to bring on different voices onto the show. We don't just talk to experts and newsmakers, which of course are extreme. We also want to hear from the American people, so the people who are impacted by the policies and issues that we're talking about, because what they have to say is just as important to the national conversation. Navigating a world of economic madness, you need to have the right guide. What do today's decisions mean for your tomorrow? We ask why, what's the alternative? Uncover the deeper reasons and the hidden influences and highlight the real opportunities for profit. At Entity Business, we connect the dots for you. Good evening. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. Latest on the U.S. and China. Top economic officials from both countries spoke on hot-button issues in a Tuesday chat, including on international trade and supply chains. According to statements from both sides, Chinese Vice Premier Liu He raised concerns about U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods, while U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen brought up China's unfair economic practices. The call comes amid reports that President Biden could announce a rollback of some U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods this week. Meanwhile, U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai has called tariffs an important leverage in the U.S.-China relationship, while noting that removing them would only have a limited effect on taming inflation. And more on China. Tesla can no longer be called the world's leading electric vehicle company. That's because Chinese conglomerate BYD has sold more electric vehicles in the first half of this year. BYD, by the way, stands for Build Your Dreams. And TD's Colin Fredrickson has more. Chinese conglomerate BYD has surpassed Tesla in electric vehicle sales, with 641,000 sold in the first half of this year, while Tesla has only sold 564,000. The reason for that is Chinese support, Chinese incentives, and getting people employed there and making sure that they buy the cars that support their economy. Lauren Fix is an automotive expert at Car Coach Reports. Fix says BYD is supported by the Chinese regime. It has to come down to components and parts and batteries. And if China's controlling the bulk of the supply issue as well as the microchips, they can supply and make the winners 
and the losers in this industry. BYD is a conglomerate based in Shenzhen, China, that makes everything from trains and buses to cars. It was founded in 1995 and is one of many electric vehicle producers in China, and Warren Buffett himself owns 7.7%. It's really hard to tell if BYD will continue to outsell Tesla. Uh, it's gaining momentum. It's got some good products out there. Uh, it, of course, did not have the COVID lockdowns in China that, that Tesla did. Paul Eisenstein is the editor-in-chief at the DetroitBureau.com. Eisenstein says the bigger concern is that Tesla doesn't have many new products coming, while competitors across the world have many. It's still uncertain when we're going to get the Cybertruck. If they want to be competitive, they could offer more models, like uh, BYD does. Uh, inexpensive model would be a, a huge seller for them. Julia Morovchek is a regional manager at Driven, a company that provides in-person Tesla courses. She says BYD has copied designs from other automakers and is innovating with its battery technology. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And more in transportation, airlines are struggling to keep up with passenger demand amid a growing worker shortage. While there's no quick fix to the problem, some are taking steps to avoid a long-term crisis, especially when it comes to recruiting America's next generation of pilots. With the busy season of air travel upon us, passengers are bracing for more delays as airlines deal with the national pilot shortage. But in the Pacific Northwest, a new training program aims to make a difference in the long run. Bailey Couturier will soon enter the Ascend Pilot Academy to pursue his dream of flying commercially. It means a lot to me specifically because I grew up in foster care. The 21-year-old from San Diego getting a preview of his future on a recent summer day. I think that I am extremely grateful that I've been given this opportunity to pursue a career in aviation without having to go in debt. The program is a partnership between Hillsborough Aero Academy and Alaska Airlines and its regional partner, Horizon Air. Upon enrollment, cadets receive a conditional job offer at Horizon and are eligible for low-interest financial aid and a $25,000 stipend to cover the cost of a commercial pilot license. I get this euphoric feeling, thinking to myself, wow, I can't believe this is what I'm doing. You know, And I do know that for a lot of individuals who really want to, they can't uh, because of that huge barrier, the finances. The overall training can cost about $100,000, which is often a barrier to entry. This is definitely life-changing. It's opened the door for me directly to my career and my dream. The FAA requires a minimum of 1,500 flight hours to qualify for an airline transport pilot certificate, which officials say can take three to five years to complete. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, thousands of pilots at major airlines took early retirements, speeding up a pilot shortage that was already taking shape. Officials at Alaska say they'll need to hire 500 pilots a year for the next four years just to meet their staffing needs. This program is only one part of building out the pipeline. Despite some of the ongoing issues surrounding the industry, some say now would still be a good time to enter. This is a sector in the economy that's going to be growing robustly. That means that you will have a very good job. And if you like the sky, then, well, the sky is the limit. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. Coming up, superior courts struck down two California laws that required a diversity quota on company boards. An attorney explains why they were struck down and how they violated the Constitution. 
And at Wimbledon, the three-time reigning champion was on the ropes today in the quarterfinals. NTD's Dave Martin details how Novak Djokovic responded after dropping the first two sets. Not long ago, Superior Court struck down a pair of California laws that mandated boards of directors meet certain diversity quotas. A senior attorney discusses what made the laws unconstitutional and why they were poorly guided policy in the first place. NTD's Eileen Ang reports. California passed two laws that required boards of directors for certain companies to meet diversity quotas. This year, Superior Court struck them both down. Anastasia Bowden, senior attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation, says the laws were unconstitutional. She explains to California insider Siema Karami why they contradicted the 14th Amendment and how it could adversely affect the workforce in California. This law flips that on its head. It makes sure that people are treated on the basis of their race or their sex or different characteristics that they're born into. It actually forces, essentially, discrim discrimination under the guise of a good purpose. She and her group sued the state of California last November over Assembly Bill 979, which requires corporations to diversify their boards. It's based on the similar Senate Bill 826, which in 2018 mandated quotas of women serving on boards. AB 979 mandates a minimum number of board members come from underrepresented communities, which is defined as an individual who self-identifies as a minority or LGBT. They're looked at as a product of government help rather than earning that promotion on their own merit. Companies were going to be fined $100,000 per year for each seat that they did not comply with the female diversity law. One of the reasons that the government can use race or sex is if it's remedying discrimination. And so the government in this case came in and said, look at all this discrimination. And the court said, I don't see it. I don't think that these disparities in representation can all be chalked up to discrimination. Bowden says setting quotas or the number of underrepresented communities on a board are also a poor remedy for discrimination. She also emphasized how the laws violate the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment states, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Even if it's true that on the whole, uh, women as a group have more char certain characteristics more than men. That doesn't mean that each individual woman has that characteristic. And so that's why we don't allow the government to pass laws based on stereotypes. Because even if they hold true for a group, it's very demeaning for the individuals within that group. It expects them to behave a certain way. And I find that very offensive. She pointed out that disparities are not necessarily due to discrimination. It can be due to individual choices. Eileen Ang, NTD News, California. To watch the full program, find California Insider on YouTube or Epic TV on the Epic Times website. And in other California legal news, a law that virtually bans truckers that engage in independent contracting will go into effect this week in the state. It's called the AB5 law. 
The law will impact some 70,000 independent truckers. Companies are affected too. Some businesses rely heavily on hiring independent contractors. This law could potentially put a huge number of people out of work. And here to talk to NTD's Don Ma about the law is the owner of a California-based trucking company. So here with us is Mike Kucharski. He's the owner of JKC Trucking Incorporated. Mike, good to have you. Thank you for having me on. So let's talk about the AB5 law in California. It's coming into effect in just a couple of days, affecting a lot of people, sending shockwaves to the trucking industry. I just want to get your first thoughts. How do you feel personally about this law? You mean, the AB5 ruling is, is going to be a catastrophic impact on all, the already fragile supply chain, uh, especially especially in California. It, what people don't understand, you know, trucking companies are forged from independent contractors or, or another name, owner-operators. You know, uh, JKC was forged from my father starting as an owner-operator. He started with one truck as an independent contractor, grew. The state of California wants to categorize all the independent drivers as, 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 as Uber drivers, you know. They want to put them in the same category, and that's not the case. It's night and day difference. You just can't put them in there. And, and, and let's say you want to start a trucking company in California, it's going to be virtually impossible to, 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 to grow and become, become a bigger carrier. You know, before this ruling area came out, a lot of California, a lot of drivers have already left California. I don't blame them. And if they continue enforcing this, there's going to be more drivers leaving and there's going to be less trucks available. And, and the trucks that are available, or the prices are just going to go up. And it's going to, you know, who is going to affect? Me, you, the consumer, the American people. It's going to hit us right in the pocket. It's going to be even cause more issues. You know, I don't understand why the state of California is doing this. You know, you do, uh, my, my theory is you don't fix something that's not broken. Who does the law benefit? Uh, that's a great question. I would love to hear from the state of California or, or from somebody in the government saying who does it benefit because uh, it doesn't benefit the workers. It's going to only add to more issues that they have to deal with if they want to continue. If they want to continue, what options do they have? Um, they'll have to somehow become, uh, become an uh, employee and it just be like a regular worker. I mean, it's a little bit different in, in owner operators because they make a lot of money, but they have a lot of expenses. You know, you have to, they don't, they pay for everything. Fuel, insurance, breakdowns. You know, they don't get no vacation pay. So how about this? What's the point of being an employee if you don't get any of the benefits and more costs? Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the company pays for the gas, don't they? I mean, they, they give you an advance for, for the diesel, correct, but that's deducted out of your pay. So in, in the, at the end of the year, you're, you're paying for everything. They're just, you know, giving you money to operate. I see, I see. Well, Mike, thanks for coming on again. Great to see you. Thank you for having me on. And staying in California, according to a state report, nearly 20% of Los Angeles Unified teachers were not fully credentialed during the 2020 to 2021 school year. The district laid off many staff members due to non-compliance with COVID vaccine mandates. Here are the details. According to a June 30th report by the California Department of Education, nearly one in five classrooms in the Los Angeles Unified School District were taught by teachers without full credentials during the 2020 to 2021 school year. While 83% of LAUSD teachers are considered clear or fully credentialed to teach in their assigned classrooms, more than 15% are considered ineffective, incomplete, or out of field. The 4.4% of ineffective teachers hold an emergency teaching permit that waived the full credentialed requirement. 
4% with incomplete credentials had completed some credential training, and 3.9% of out-of-field credential teachers have not yet demonstrated competence in the subject or for the particular student population they were assigned to teach. The district also had 2.4% of teachers enrolled in an internship program and 1.5% of teachers with an unknown status. LAUSD officials told the Epic Times last month that the district had about 1,500 teaching positions to fill before the fall semester starts in August. The district was short of about 420 in-classroom teachers this spring semester. This prompted the superintendent to direct non-teaching district staff who held teaching credentials or who formerly held teaching positions to fill in the gap for the rest of the school year. According to the parent and teacher advocacy group Los Angeles Educators and Parents United, the district fired more than 800 staff members during the 2021-22 school year. The firings were for non-compliance with the district COVID jab mandate. The district hasn't confirmed the total number of teachers who were fired because of being unvaccinated after multiple requests for comment. It's fire season in the Golden State, and the blazes, along with evacuation orders, often lead to people leaving their homes in nature's hands. NTD's David Lamb has a local fire update, and what made one resident feel safe enough not to evacuate. On 4th of July, a new fire dubbed the Electra Fire exploded to 3,000 acres overnight in the Sierra Nevada mountain range. Uh, Amador County is on the left-hand side of the reticle. Calaveras County is on the right-hand side. Authorities say it may have been sparked by fireworks or barbecue. Evacuation orders affected 800 to 900 people in nearby counties. According to CAL FIRE, it's 0% contained as of Tuesday afternoon. The 904-acre Rices Fire is 85% contained as of Tuesday. It's been burning actively for six days in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Evacuation warnings were given to those near the Rices Fire last week. However, one resident decided to stay back. The reason I stay back because I cleared the all around my property so none of fire will danger my home. Juan Lee is a land and business owner. She said she had 24 large pine trees around her property cut down last year to protect her home in case a fire catches on. Mind you, it's a few acres of a property here. Everything is green around here. So even the fire come close, they're not going to hit it. What did you have to do to prepare your property? Well, first of all, you have to spend money, let's put it that way. You have to call the logger or tree faller. Then they come out assessing how they're going to do it. Lee is in her 70s, and she says she's been on her property in the mountains since December of 1990. So to save your life, to save your own property, you have to do it yourself instead of rely on somebody else. That's what I believe. And luckily, the wind was on her side blowing smoke away from her home. You see, all the way around my house, the lawn is all watered and green, okay? Mm. Just be prepared. Don't expect anybody else to do it for you. She believes homeowners should take autonomy and maintain their property to ensure safety. David Lamb, NTD News, California. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. 
Today at Wimbledon, top-seeded Novak Djokovic rallied after dropping the first two sets to beat Yannick Sinner in five to advance to the semifinals. The three-time reigning champion dropped the first two sets 7-5 and 6-2 before seemingly flipping the switch and dominating the final three sets. Djokovic, who's a six-time Wimbledon champion, has now won 26 matches in a row at the All England Club since having to retire with an elbow injury in 2017. In addition, the win was his 84th there all-time, moving him to a tie for second most behind Roger Federer's 105. The win moves the 35-year-old into the semifinals, his 11th at Wimbledon, where he will play Britain's own Cameron Norrie. In golf, 15-time major champion Tiger Woods finished play at the J.P. McManus Pro-Am today in Ireland with a 2-over-74 in round two. The 46-year-old finished the two-round event with a score of 7-over par. The event was Woods' third on tour since a February 2021 car accident that nearly cost him his leg. Once the world's number one ranked player, a visibly limping Woods, withdrew from the PGA Championship in May after putting up a 9-over-79 for his worst ever score at the event. That was just a month after his return to the Masters, where he started strong before finishing in 47th place. Woods is in Europe in preparation for next week's British Open Championship. In basketball, WNBA star Brittany Griner was somehow able to send a letter to President Biden saying she fears she might not ever return home. Griner's agent said the handwritten letter was delivered Monday. Some of its contents read, As I sit here in a Russian prison, alone with my thoughts and without the protection of my wife, family, friends, Olympic jersey, or any accomplishments, I'm terrified I might be here forever. Griner added that she voted for Biden, that freedom means something different to her this year, and that she's grateful for whatever Biden can do. Although she's able to send and receive notes to family and friends through her Russian attorneys, they're monitored by Russian officials. A representative for the WNBA star would not say how they got this letter from her prison in Moscow all the way to the White House. Griner has been detained in Russia since February after local authorities say they found cannabis oil in her luggage at a Moscow airport. Her trial is expected to resume on July 7th. And finally, in baseball last night, Twins Gold Glove center fielder Byron Buxton executed the first ever triple play in baseball history that involved just the center fielder and third baseman. Buxton tracked down a deep fly ball in right center field that no one, not even the base runners, expected him to get to. He then turned and threw to third baseman Gio Urshela, who tagged one runner out and threw to first base for the third out. The feat was just the 16th triple play in Twins history and the second involving just two players. Minnesota went on to win the game 6-3 over the Chicago White Sox. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, Pakistani military says warships purchased from China are detective. Defective. They've detected problems with the ship's missile firing systems. And Taiwanese civilians are taking defense and medical training. This comes after the war in Ukraine raised fears of a similar attack from neighbor China. Learn more in just a moment on NTD News.
Pakistani military has reported defects in four warships bought from China. They're said to fail when firing missiles. Let's take a look. At least four frigates the Pakistani Navy purchased from China are defective. That's according to a report from the Eurasia Times. The finding is based on analysis from European expert Valerio Fabri. He noted that Pakistan signed a deal with China in 2005 to build F-22P or Zulfiqar-class frigates. They were sold for $750 million and delivered between 2009 and 2013. Three of the ships were acquired from the China Shipbuilding Trading Company. One was built by Pakistan's Karachi Shipyard and Engineering Works under a technology transfer agreement with China. These frigates were intended to enhance air defense, intercept hostile surface combatants, and run patrols, among other purposes. Such missions require them to possess long-range surface-to-surface and surface-to-air missiles. But the Pakistan Navy detected issues with the search and track radars of the ship's FM-90 missile system. They were malfunctioning during high-power transmissions, so the system was unable to lock onto the target and would somehow disable the missile. All 17 defective infrared sensors on all the ships had to be discarded. Another problem involved the ship's main engines. High temperatures from the exhaust can cause them to run at a low speed, as explained by Fabry. A high degree of degradation was noticed in the engine crankcase and liner, which undermined the coolant chemistry in the ships. Lube oil degradation and deterioration of vibration isolators were some other faults in the engines. According to the Eurasia Times, problems with Chinese-made defense equipment have been well documented. The Pakistan Army used to import VT-4 main battle tanks and heavy artillery guns from Beijing. In February, the country reported quality and reliability problems with these weapons. The Royal Jordanian Air Force and the Bangladesh Air Force claimed similar deficiencies. They both identified performance problems with aircraft procured from Chinese aviation companies. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has brought a new spotlight to China's threat to Taiwan. Not only soldiers, but the average Taiwanese civilian is now preparing for a possible conflict. The war in Ukraine has sparked great concern in Taiwan. There, more civilians are signing up for military and first aid training. They say they're preparing for a possible attack from neighboring China. Many people are paying attention to what is happening in Ukraine. In the past, you might think that war is just something between soldiers, but now it doesn't look like that. Sometimes civilians also need to involve themselves in aid work. Once you're in aid work or resource gathering, you also become a target for the enemy. In New Taipei City, private security company Polar Light Training helps transform citizens into defense and first aid units. People come to get familiar with soft air guns and other military weapons, like a portable anti-tank bazooka. This woman is a patent engineer. It's her first time learning to handle an airsoft gun. This year I saw the invasion in Ukraine by Russia, and I had this feeling. Despite the international community saying they will provide assistance, the help is not going to be there on time. So I think that Taiwanese people should have the ability to defend themselves. The Forward Alliance, a Taiwanese national security and civil defense think tank, provides professional first aid training. Jack Chang is the general secretary of the Taiwan Society of Paramedicine. He says interest in medical first aid is driven by what people see in the news about Ukraine. 
At each session, we would ask trainees why they would attend first aid classes. Many would mention concerns about the war in Ukraine. So they start to ask themselves, I am a civilian. What can I do to help? What can I do for myself, for my family, or what can I do for others? Lin Ping Yu points out the key to international intervention in a potential conflict in the Taiwan Strait. The war in Ukraine by Russia has confirmed such a theory. Only when people have shown their strong determination to defend themselves and act on it can they convince the international community to help them. Taiwan is a self-ruled island. It's only about 100 miles off the east coast of China. China claims Taiwan as part of its territory, though the Chinese Communist Party has never ruled the island. A Chinese military attack on Taiwan isn't in the immediate future, but the United States is watching the situation closely. That's according to General Mark Milley, chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff. When asked by the BBC whether he thought China would attack Taiwan, the top U.S. general replied, quote, There's no indications or warnings of anything imminent at this time, but again, we watch it very, very closely. Milley confirmed that China is clearly making plans to attack the island at some point, which Chinese leader Xi Jinping has mentioned in public speeches. Milley's comments come amid rising tensions across the Taiwan Strait, a sensitive waterway separating mainland China and Taiwan. And coming up, the story of one proud Bosnian family that's been operating the same water mill for the past 250 years. The mill grinds flour every day, 365 days a year. We'll find out why the family insists on keeping this dying craft alive after this short break. proud Bosnian family is sticking to traditional ways to keep themselves and their neighbors fed. Their watermill has been grinding flour for the past 250 years. It grinds every day, 365 days a year. Let's find out more from NTD's Eddie Aitken. For the last two and a half centuries, a Bosnian family has been operating this watermill. It's located on the Yangya River on the gentle slopes of the Malevica mountain range in the northeastern region of the country. The proud owner spends his days tending to his cornfield or grinding grains into flour. Our watermill relies on the ancient method of making flour, which differentiates it from the modern grain grinders. Our millstones rotate between 80 and 90 times per minute and do not heat the flour. Over a decade ago, Angelko Delic picked up the mantle of his father as the owner and principal miller. He takes a lot of pride in his dying craft, not only because it provides him and his closest kin with a comfortable life, but also because he carries on a family tradition established by his great-grandfather at the turn of the 19th century. We still use the same way, the same method of grain grinding that has been in use since the early history of human civilization. Delich is confident that his two adult sons, who help with work, will carry on the family tradition when the time comes for him to retire. I come from a family that has been in the grain milling business for the past 250 years. 
To keep it short, my sons are the fifth generation of traditional grain millers in our family, and I'm more than happy that they embraced this dying craft. He's very aware of the looming global food crisis sparked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But his ancient water mill has stood the test of time despite Bosnia's own turbulent history, which includes the brutal war between 1992 and 95. The water mill is the mother of all grain mills and has fed countless generations of people. Nobody has ever set it on fire or destroyed it, not even during World War I or World War II because even in the times of war, people needed to keep them fed. Delich and his two sons have planted 16 hectares of corn in a nearby field. Besides serving the clients who come to grind their own wheat, corn, buckwheat or any other grain, the Deliches are also grinding their own crop and selling the flour to numerous regular customers. In 2021, they produced 50 tons of flour and hope to do even better this year. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephania Cox.